0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser Frederick, a host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Evan Rothera about his new book, Civil Wars and Reconstructions in the Americas, United States, Mexico and Argentina, 1860 to 1880. Evan, hello and welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Hello, Ethan, and I really appreciate you having me on here to talk about my book. So before we get started, you know, digging into the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write a work on multiple countries? I always find these uh, multiple site pieces always have a very interesting sort of intellectual origin.
1: Yes, yes. It's uh, it's quite a story. So my name, obviously, is Evan Ruther. I'm currently assistant professor of history at University of Arkansas, Fort Smith, I did undergrad at Gettysburg College and the story really starts there to be quite frank. So um, part of the requirements for my, I was a double major in history and Spanish, minor in War studies. One of the Spanish major requirements is you needed to study abroad. So there were any number of programs, could have gone to Spain, could have gone to Mexico, could have gone to Argentina. And of course I talked to different faculty members, all of, all of whom recommended their particular favorite for the program. Um, and I decided to go to Argentina. I studied in Mendoza, which was a great experience. Um, and while in Mendoza, I was taking an Argentine social history class and I came across and it was almost one of those it was kind of like a throwaway reference that you see sometimes in a footnote. It just said, you know, blah, blah, blah. Sarmiento's biography of Abraham Lincoln. And I thought, what? I OK, so that piqued my curiosity. Um you know, I, I knew a little bit about Domingo Sarmiento at that point. Obviously, he had been an arch-time minister to the United States. He had been president of Argentina from 1868 to 74. You know, I knew a little bit, a little bit about his educational ideas, um, and of course, I'd heard of Facundo and I'd read parts of it, but really, I had no notion that he had written a biography of Abraham Lincoln. So I said to myself, "Well, when did he write this?" Then I dug into it, and it turns out, you know, it was written not that long after he came to the United States in 1865. So he was one of the earlier post-assassination biographies of Abraham Lincoln, and really one of the first, um, if not the first, Latin American biography of Lincoln, and one that Bob May said really kind of set the tone for a couple generations in terms of how Latin Americans thought about Lincoln. So got back to Gettysburg, wrote a paper for this, for Matt Norman's Lincoln class, um, starting to think about grad school at that point, that was now at the end of my junior year, did my applications, Penn State, among other places, and I was really thinking a comparative project between the United States and Argentina. So building on the work that I've started, thinking about Sarmiento, you know, verging into this notion of comparative reconstructions, which is still relatively um, underexplored, although there are a couple people writing about it these days. So anyway... Um, You know, apply, got into Penn State, went up there, started the MA PhD program. And again, for, you know, basically throughout my coursework until I did my comps in 2013, it, it really had remained a comparative project. But at one point, Bill Blair says to me, you know, you really ought to consider adding Mexico into this story. And, you know, that was a very good solution, but it's not necessarily what grad student has to scare up money to go do research in multiple countries necessarily wants to hear. So I thought about it and I mulled it over and ultimately he was right. It was the, the correct idea, you know, if it had been strictly a U.S.-Mexico project, you could probably see people. Well, this is just you know the pecu- part of the peculiar history of the United States and Mexico with that border and the proximity. And if it had been U.S. and Argentina, it's like, well, this is a particular history of the U.S. and Argentina because they're so far apart and they don't have that long border and they have a different history. But throwing the three countries together and kind of shaking things up and seeing what emerged, you know, asked me to look at some older questions, hopefully in in new light and pose some new questions as well. So that's how I came to the three-country model. Um, And of course, usually whenever I do this talk, people ask, well, what about incorporating this country? What about incorporating that one? And those are fair questions. But ultimately, there's only so much you can say and do in 250 pages. And And I like to stress to people, you know, this is not the definitive treatment of comparative reconstructions or the transnational processes that I talk about you know it's part of this growing conversation both of the um, internationalization of US historiography looking at the Civil War and transnational perspective but really I would say also thinking about a, an American history of this period you know one that is truly transnational in scope and those are all projects that are really in their infancy to a large extent so there's still a lot to be said. There's still a lot to be done. Um, This is not the definitive or the final word by any stretch of the imagination. So for all young scholars who are looking at potential dissertation projects and thinking along these lines, my advice is don't be discouraged at all. There's still a heck of a lot you can do in a lot of different places, too. So all that to say, you know, that's how I kind of came to the project. Um, And, you know, the writing of it, there were some... Um, there were some things that flowed very easily. And there were some pieces that uh, took a little bit longer to write. So as I suppose you would say is the case with any book. Um, And after I left Penn State, I went to Sam Houston, I was a year there as a lecturer, then I came here to Fort Smith as assistant professor. So there were a couple moves along the way. And, um, you know, all along, I was tinkering with the uh, project. And then You know, LSU gave an advanced contract, got very good feedback from the readers on the first draft, and you know now it's in print, and I'm very happy with the final product.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. I I think in a vacuum, I would have maybe guessed the addition of those countries in the other order. I think I would have guessed U.S. and Mexico to start with sort of Argentina added in. So it's interesting to hear it's the other way around. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, let's start into the introduction and what this book wants to say about, well, what this book says, I shouldn't say wants to say, what this book says about the relationship between these places. So the introduction lays out the three countries you examine, as you just said, the United States, Mexico, and Argentina, and it also introduces that the book is going to be into, sorted into two parts. The first part is the liberal defense uh, of republicanism against reaction in the 1860s, and the second is the rise of the politics order and reactionary violence in the 1870s, and all the sort of messiness that comes with winning, uh, quote unquote. So could you talk a little bit about the the processes or the common historical experience that these three countries are undergoing that, for you, uh, paints a picture of a, a broader hemispheric experience? Sure, sure. So and we always like to talk
1: about the Civil War and the American Civil War and the Civil War era. And usually when we do that, it's not a very Precise terms, right? We think about, well, obviously, the Civil War we're talking about is the U.S. Civil War. Um, so, one of the things that I really got interested in when I started this project is yes, okay, we, we all know the chronology of the U.S. Civil War, 1861 to 1865. But if we look a little broader, sort of in North America, you know, there's Mexico, again, that long border with the United States. Mexico goes through its own war, the reform, its own civil war, starting in 1857, ending in 1861. So about the time, you know, the United States is falling into civil war, it seems like Mexico is coming out of it. Only we know that's not the case, right? With the suspension of the interest on the debt payments and then the tripartite intervention, all of a sudden Mexico is replunged back into civil war. And this one occurs simultaneously with the one that's happening in, in the United States, and then we have Argentina, and that civil war is really an outgrowth of the wars of independence, um, you know, this persistent conflict between Unitarios and Federales, Juan Manuel de Rosas, who's eventually ousted, then there's a new Calio, Justo José de Arquiza, and he's eventually ousted. So we have kind of this fascinating moment in 1860-61, where the three countries are either, in the case of the United States, moving into civil war, in the case of Argentina, kind of moving to a new it's really a new period with the conclusion of pavon and then you have mexico that's kind of in between civil war so there's a slight break almost um and so that fascinated me quite a bit you know because again if you look at the historiography of the u.s civil war there's a lot and and i'm not you know being hyperbolic here there's been a lot written about i think somebody estimated fifty thousand books that's um a damn a lot of treason and ink spilled on this topic, but there's very little that really looks at the war kind of beyond the bounds of the United States. And usually when it does, it's often the um, look across the sea, Britain and France, and maybe Russia to a lesser extent, a little bit of some of the German states, Prussia, you know, Italy that extendedly existed yet. So, you know, it's mostly an east-west axis, but my point is let's reorient things. Let's look north-south And all of a sudden, when you do, right, you find that the United States is not uh, the only country in the hemisphere going through a civil war. You know, you have multiples going through a civil war and civil wars that look, in some respects, quite similar to each other, Um, not necessarily in the size of the armies per se, but kind of in how people are framing them. You know, so in the case of the US Civil War, you know, we have what? The Confederacy, this new organization of states that is disgusted with the way the 1860 presidential election left, they said, to heck with it. We're out of here. We're gone. We're going to form our own nation. And a lot of people at the time said, well, you know, what's driving this Confederacy? And we know that slavery and race sat at the heart of things. Um, The people at the time said this is, again, you know, slave oligarchs. You know, they use that language of oligarchy, slave aristocrats. They're very very careful in in how they frame this, you know, and a lot of Republicans Lincoln included thought this whole thing was basically a planter coup. So, you know, the the slave oligarchs are in the driver's seat right now, but let the sensible people of the South kind of come to their senses and this thing will stop. But, but people are saying, again, you know, the, the North, right. The the United States, this shining beacon uh, to the rest of the world, John Winthrop's city on a Hill is being What? Um, it's being threatened by slave aristocrats. And now, of course, Mexico and Argentina, you know, there weren't anywhere near the number of slaves there. Um, Certainly not at that period, because slavery had been abolished in both places. But even if you rewind the clock to the Wars of Independence, the number of slaves are much smaller. So in that sense, you have kind of a different context. But at the same time, you know, in Argentina, again, people are tossing around that language of oligarchy and aristocracy. And then in Mexico, I mean, This is probably the clearest-cut case of it. The Civil War, you see the same thing. When the French intervene, when Napoleon III decides he's going to try and reconstitute that French New World Empire, and when he puts Maximilian on the Mexican throne, I mean, they don't even have to do any heavy lifting in saying democracy and republicanism is literally threatened by these, well, psychotic European princes who are trying to destroy democracy. So in each case, right, people are looking at these wars as – I mean, they're important in their own right, right? Lincoln's right that the Civil War is, for a lot of people, the last best hope of Earth. It's just not the only one, right? Each conflict is the last best hope of Earth because each conflict pits democracy and republicanism against some force of reaction. You know, that could be aristocracy, oligarchy, or, you know, an actual French emperor and then um, Austrian archduke turned Mexican emperor. So people are saying, you know, these are really kind of part of a much larger struggle in some ways, and it's a struggle that people throughout the world sort of enunciated in different ways. I mean, Lincoln would say when he debated Stephen Arnold Douglas in 1858, you know, it's really at the heart of it, the divine right of kings versus the common right of humanity. Or for a lot of people, it's, you know, the same spirit that rose in rebellion in Europe in 1848 and was subsequently crushed by reaction. It's the spirit that drove a lot of the Atlantic world revolutions, um, This spirit that you know, we don't want kings and we don't want princes and we don't want oligarchs and we don't want aristocrats. You know, the people should be sovereign and should run things their own way. And one other point, too, and we'll probably come to this, but I want to raise it now. A lot of people think, well, at the time, if you were in the United States, you know, you were looking for inspiration to Europe or whatever. But actually, I mean... Really, a lot of people were looking to the Americas, um, the United States, obviously, but also the Latin American republics, too. That's where the true sort of ferment uh, in terms of republicanism and democracy is taking place. I mean, Europe is, well, it's the old world, right, for a lot of people. They don't see much to admire there. And, And Sarmant is a great example. He goes to Europe all excited. He's going to study schools and educational systems. He does not come away impressed. What impresses him ultimately is Massachusetts and its superior system of common schools. Um, so people find a lot to admire in the republics in their own hemisphere, and they're always concerned too. You know, each war it represents yet again. It's, it's a larger battle and a much larger. It's a, sorry. It's a battle in a much larger conflict. So that's why you're going to see people moving from conflict to conflict. So basically, the framing of a lot of these wars is is very similar. There's a lot of intriguing similarities there. And I try and point those out and and highlight them whenever possible throughout the book.
0: And the connections between these places are literal, they're personal, they're ideological, there's a number of ways that they're connected. The first part of your book, Transnational Histories of Pan-American Cooperation, examines the transnational liberal warriors who move around the world fighting against what they viewed to be tyranny. And the first chapter of this section is aptly titled Transnational Warriors. And it argues that a great number of America, uh, people in the Americas viewed their struggles as a common fight against tyranny, like you just said. And this chapter covers the story of several of these individuals, um, which are very interesting reads for people that I think the Atlantic history has gotten a, a great number of these stories of interesting individuals that sort of crisscross the Atlantic. And it starts with the very interesting case of Edelmiro Mayer. Uh, so, could you tell us a little bit about this Argentine figure, if I'm remembering correctly, and others like him in this time period? Yes, I could. And I certainly will. So, and and, and Mayor
1: is a fascinating figure, you know, I first, I mean, I encountered him well before I did the research in Argentina, but I was sitting in the um, Archivo General de la Nacion in Buenos Aires doing research and I came across this handwritten fragment. Uh, and that led me to a larger story. So he is a young Argentine during the Wars of Unification. He fights on the side of Buenos Aires. And then when that war ends, he goes to the United States after securing testimonials, um, introduced to Lincoln. Lincoln appoints him to an officer in what was called a USCT or United States Colored Troops Regiment. Then after the U.S. Civil War ended, Mayer went down to Mexico and he fought alongside the liberals to help expel the French. So this guy fought in numerous conflicts, right? Then he goes back to Argentina in the 1870s, and he sort of becomes a victim of Argentine politics. Um, There's a faction in the Argentine Congress that want to strip his citizenship from him. And their justification is, well, he's been all over the world. He fought in all these foreign wars. He's not really an Argentine anymore. So he's not entitled to the the benefits of Argentine citizenship. And there there was a really angry reaction in Congress to this. And Aristobulo de Valle gave this very fascinating address and he really scolded the people who are trying to do this he said would you have stripped Lafayette citizenship for fighting alongside the Americans in their revolution against Europe would you strict stripped Garibaldi citizenship for what he did in Uruguay and of course the answer for him is no and he was disgusted he said you know mr. mayor was fighting in a much broader American cause right and I love that phrasing He fought in a broader American cause so what Del Valle is saying is, Mayor—he's a—he's a proud Argentine, right? He's a proud Argentine nationalist. He's an Argentine citizen, but he's also cognizant of the fact that there's this much larger world, right? A much larger struggle, and one in which he was very interested in participating. So it kind of—and the Argentine Congress votes to defeat the attempt to strip Mayor's citizenship. So it vindicates both him and, and Del Valle to some extent. So what I try and do is look at the people who are moving around the Atlantic world fighting these different conflicts. And and I'll say usually kind of the question or the pushback I get from audiences, well, aren't these guys just mercenaries, right? Oh, they're just looking for coin in the pocket. You know, That's really the entire motivation here. There's nothing ideological. I have an issue with that line of analysis, which I'll bring forth in a second. But if you look at some of the people I profile in this chapter i mean mayor obviously um and others as well they're not indiscriminate joiners in the way you might expect um for mercenary minded folk who are just interested in the money they go where the money is in fact right in the aftermath of the failed hungarian revolution in 1848 um Oliveri, um hugo hillebrand and others the the ottoman sultan tries to get them to come and fight in his army and they both say nope And, you know, there would have been plenty of money there if they were truly interested in it. A lot of these transnational wars, I mean, some will be in the Crimean War, some, but most of them don't really seem interested in participating like that. Um, They're very picky about where they go and where they fight, right? So I see them as driven more by ideology than by coins in the pocket, you know, and what does this look like? You're asking some examples. Well, we've already seen Mayer's trajectory, um, people don't always behave in ways that you might expect. So Felix Samsom, who's a Prussian aristocrat, you would think, well, he's going to go fight for the South, obviously. And no, he doesn't, right? He ends up fighting for the North, right? So if you follow the old roundhead cavalier dichotomy, here's a cavalier fighting alongside the roundheads. And then he goes to Mexico after that. And you think, okay, well, he fought for the North. So liberal minded guy, he's going to go fight for the liberals. Nope. He fights for the conservatives and Maximilian. And is that because of ideology? Is it because of a shared aristocratic background? Scholars have advanced several ideas, right? Garibaldi, long, long before Garibaldi was famous in Italy, I mean, he was famous in the Americas. He becomes the preeminent transnational warrior in some respects, like Lafayette, the hero of two worlds. So when the U.S. Civil War kicked off, people said, let's see if we can go get Garibaldi to command the Union armies, and they they tried, and he said, "I'll do it," um, with the stipulation that the United States makes this an abolition war from the beginning, which Lincoln and the government weren't willing to do for a number of reasons at that point. So Hugo Hillebrand, right, another Hungarian fights in the um he's very disappointed by the aftermath of the wars in hungary you know he leaves goes to the united states gets involved on the side of the north in the civil war um eventually serves in the Freedmen's bureau during reconstruction fascinating story there silvino oliveri who is an italian right he flees to buenos aires After um, the failed revolutions in 1848, he then gets involved in the wars, the latter stages really of the wars of unification, fighting against uh, Urquiza at that point and, and vindicating the cause of Buenos Aires. And it's very quick where this Italian immigrant is starting to talk about, you know, the sacred cause of our home, and he doesn't mean whatever's going on in Italy at that point. He means Buenos Aires, and he's barely been there for a year. Um, So some really fascinating people, and I can't hope to capture all their stories, you know, and and again, couldn't even capture all them in the book due to due to space limits. There's also some, you know, kind of baffling trajectories in there, too. Right. There are Latin Americans who fight alongside the Confederacy. Um, Santos Benavides is probably the most famous example, uh, but Jose Quintero, also famous, some people have hypothesized because of their class backgrounds, because of their, especially for Quintero, because of his um, slaveholding background, it makes him more sympathetic to the Confederacy. But still, it leaves us with people who, as Grant say, said, fought for one of the worst causes that mankind had ever fought for up to that point. You know, what do we do with that? Or John T. Pickett? You know, long dismissed as kind of a crank, right? But again, in his initial stages look more like some of the others. He goes and fights in the revolutions of 1848. He's a big Kosuth fan. We know that fails. He's back in the United States. Then he gets caught up in the filibustering movements where he tries to uh, get involved in these expeditions to wrench territory away from the Americas, principally Cuba, but he looks elsewhere. Then he concocts this – I don't know how to, what to call it other than a bizarre scheme – where he and kosuth you know with help from the dominican republic are going to conquer haiti and then after conquering haiti they're going to turn and you know restart the revolution in hungary and that obviously doesn't go anywhere and then he goes to mexico as a confederate diplomat he does so badly that he really damages not that the confederacy had a huge chance with what is government right but it you know a better diplomat might have at least had a shot of getting something going. Uh, that doesn't work. So I, I think I see Pickett as more the reactionary impulse, showing that, again, most of these transnational warriors tended to favor what we would call liberal causes and liberal ideas, but some of them clearly did not. And again, the point here being we often see wars as, while well, they're confined to nations or this preposterous idea that history somehow stops at national borders. And I mean, these these transnational warriors really put the lie direct to that point and show us that, no, it, it in fact does not. They're cognizant of this broader world. And more than that, it's not just words. I mean, they're willing to go fight, you know, to vindicate these principles. Um, for Pickett, they're not really principles anybody should be proud of. But for a lot of the transnational warriors they are, you know, we're going to lay down our lives to defend republicanism and democracy against these reactionary forces. And as I say, I mean, some of them do, you know, some seem to lead charmed lives, you know, multiple wars, and they live, you know, to old age and die in their beds. But um, the Fernandez Cavada brothers who were Cuban, right, fought in the U.S. Civil War and then in Cuba's 10 years war, both of them died during that conflict. And Grant and the diplomatic machinery of the United States can't save them from the Spanish at the end of the day. So there's a real cost here. And I don't know about some of you, but when I teach, you know, the American Revolution, we talk about Jefferson, then we get in the Atlantic World Revolutions, obviously. And there's a famous quote from Jefferson, right? The tree of liberty must be watered with the blood of tyrants. And we maybe look a little askance because of Jefferson's ideas about revolutions and race. But a lot of people subscribe to that idea at the time, you know, that the tree of liberty has to be watered with tyrants and that sometimes revolution is the only way to shake off tyranny. But they would also agree with Jefferson, you know, about the the price of liberty is always going to be eternal vigilance. So they understood. I mean, these are fragile experiments in the new world and there are powerful forces that want to destroy them. And I'd say probably a lot of us have a renewed appreciation of that point especially in in recent years too. I mean, democracy does seem very stable in some respects and almost the default mode of governance for a lot of the world, but it's also fragile, you know, and sometimes we forget just how fragile, but I think they had a very concrete understanding of that. And so that's what drove a lot of these transnational warriors to go to these conflicts. Um, But you're right. You do see, they're, they're fascinating people, you know, and their stories are fascinating, what they do um, these, these trajectories. I mean, I haven't covered everything, you know, I want to leave some some snippets for folks who buy the book, so.
0: It, it's a very good chapter for breaking down any sort of illusion of national histories being merely national, like you said. And your second chapter carries on the sort of discursive impacts of this mindset and these actions. And, and it's titled, Sister Republics and the Monroe Doctrine. And it argues how the meaning of the Monroe Doctrine evolved under the collaborative work of these liberals, both the ones moving back and forth, but also the ones just thinking uh, back and forth across the Americas. So could you describe this evolution of the Monroe Doctrine and the term Sisters Republic? Certainly. So let me begin with two points. One,
1: when Lincoln was elected, he spends the lame duck period from early November through basically late February, well, mid-February, before he heads off for Washington in Springfield. Doesn't want to say anything, doesn't want to give any statements, but he receives a stream of visitors. Among other visitors is a young Mexican man named Matias Romero, who was sent by Benito Juarez and the Minister of Foreign Affairs at that time, Campo, and they sent him with specific instructions. Basically, Romero was to tell Lincoln Like, we are so glad James Buchanan and those nutjobs are no longer in power because liberals and Republicans, man, we're kindred spirits, right? So even there, they're trying to reorient the U.S.-Mexico relationship. And remember, this is 1860-61. Romero was there in 61. So really, less than 13 years after the end of the U.S. war with Mexico, which, um, for those of you who might not remember so clearly, that was when you know, Polk manufactured a war with Mexico, the United States ended up by taking half of Mexico's national territory. So a a bruising conflict. And in fact, right, to get to your one of your points, Ethan, um, the language of sister republics, where does that come from? Well, Caitlin Fitz and our sister republic shows it was very common during the Spanish American revolutions, people were wildly enthusiastic about these conflicts. But she contends, and, and I think this is true, you know, it's really when you start getting into the latter stages of the John Quincy Adams presidency, when Andrew Jackson and the Jacksonians are really coming into their own, you know, they scuttle, uh, well, they prolong U.S. Um, the debate over whether we should send representatives to a Congress um, of, of countries of the Americas, Sister Republic starts falling out of vogue. And then, you know, for a lot of people, the U.S. war with Mexico kind of killed the concept in the sense that, you know, in a world filled with hostile threats, why on earth are Sister Republics making war on each other? So part of this chapter, you're right, it's a direct extension of chapter one. It shows, again, more transnational warriors, right? Highlights, I would say, the reemergence of the language of sister republics because people are seeing these two conflicts, the um, U.S. Civil War and then Mexico's war, the reform slash French intervention, as braided, as intertwined. So you'll see things in there where Ulysses S. Grant, for instance, writes Andrew Johnson and says, as long as Mexico's war endures, Our civil war doesn't end, right? They see them as really linked. And so a lot of what I try to do is go through and show, well, what does that mean? And you're going to see people raising money. You're going to see people volunteering and going to fight in this conflict. You're going to see um, people making a mockery out of the Neutrality Acts, you know, completely ignoring them and Andrew Johnson doing absolutely nothing to enforce them. Um, So there's a heck of a lot going on down on that southern border. And Johnson could enforce the Neutrality Acts when he wanted to. Right. They stopped the Finian incursions into Canada and they broke that up pretty quickly. He had no interest in halting anything that was going on on the southern border. So part of what I'm doing in here, again, showing the, um, the again, more and more case studies of transnational warriors. Also, the reemergence of sister republics, the reorientation of the U.S. relationship with Mexico, which, again, most people would say was it hit in a deer in the late 1840s. And it really didn't improve for a lot of the 1850s. Um, But here it starts to improve. And a lot of this is this experience of passing through braided or linked civil wars. Now, the Monroe Doctrine, of course, you know, we think of that as a statement by the U.S. We say the Monroe Doctrine, but really it was John Quincy Adams, you know, (laughs) that wrote it uh, for Monroe's State message. So the Monroe Doctrine basically said, you know, European incursions into the Americas um, would be dangerous to the peace and security of the United States, right? Very concerned because this is, again, 1823. We're seeing emergent Spanish-American republics, but some are still trying to shake the shackles off of Spain. And there's a concern that France um, or Spain or other European powers would come in and try and pluck up these young republics. And so the Monroe Doctrine, which, again, the British kind of got behind, which is why it was somewhat effective said stay out you know stay hemisphere what's interesting though is we think of it as unilateral right we have this tendency well this is a u.s thing u.s u.s declaration toward britain and latin americans were sort of you know caught up in this to some extent but but not really as agents more as um people that the u.s was going to protect or whatever the case may be and then we get to the end of the 19th century and you get the roosevelt corollary and the interventions and the the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine becomes a real problem in U.S.-Latin America relations. But here, what I found is fascinating and not necessarily what we might expect, um, a lot of Mexicans are very adept at invoking the Monroe Doctrine as and using that as an argument That the United States should, in fact, intervene in this conflict should do something. They can't stand idly by. So these language of sister republics, but also, why won't you vindicate the Monroe Doctrine? And they're picking up on lines of attack in U.S. politics as well. You see this throughout newspapers, people's speeches, correspondence, stuff like that. Why, why don't we want to vindicate the Monroe Doctrine? Why would he allow this um, pestilential French emperor Napoleon III to? intervene? Why is he going to be able to um, subvert, you know, a democratically elected president like Juarez and build a a monarchy on the ruins, you know? So there's a a real push um, among both Mexicans and people in the United States that says, hey, we've got to do something. And so the Monroe Doctrine becomes collaborative, this statement against empire in some ways, not just sort of a general european stay out it's it's really redefined i would argue in this period
0: the next chapter pulls concrete examples of this evolving understanding of the united states relationship with the rest of the americas uh in a way that is a little bit unbelievable uh from the 21st century perspective. The third chapter is called What to the Mexican and the Argentine is the 4th of July? And it examines the celebration of U.S. nationalist festivals, especially the 4th of July, across the Americas. So in this re-emerging and re-evaluation of the sister republic's relationship, what caused Latin Americans to celebrate the 4th of July? And what do these celebrations tell us about this period?
1: Very good questions. Thank you. And I mean, there's a number of things. So in Mexico's case, right, you see some 4th of July celebrations during the war, as again, the two countries are redefining their relationship, putting it onto a better footing, cooperating in their dual civil wars, uh, and especially with the the aid I discussed in the last chapter. So you really start to see it in Mexico in 1867. And the first draft of this chapter I showed to Mark Neely, and I don't think he would mind me sharing this. He said, uh, when I was reading it, I nearly fell out of my chair. And I figure if you can find something that makes Mark nearly nearly fall out of his chair in surprise, then, you know, that's that's pretty cool. And again, I had never really thought about, well, before the Fourth of July celebrations in Mexico and Argentina, um, you know, and so really again from 1860 to 66 you find some They tend to be more sporadic there's a very impressive one in 1865 um a commercial agent Ooh, he uh he had some very strong things to say you know about the united states's duty toward mexico and what it should do to help expel the french and defeat the imperialists and i think andrew johnson was a little tweaked about that it felt like he was observing uh, Sorry, taking away some of his authority, so that didn't end well for that particular diplomatic official. But a lot of these Fourth of July celebrations, they you know, you saw a lot kick off in eighteen sixty seven. They really accelerated from there. You know, they became a way for both countries to sort of, as a tangible way, demonstrate this very different relationship. Now, you know, friendship, cooperation, and here's a good example that I often use with people: um, eighteen sixty seven right? Maximilian is captured at Queretaro. His army's defeated. He's put on trial. He's executed in June of that year. July 4th comes around. There's July 4th celebrations, including the city of Veracruz in 1867. 20 years earlier, again, to talk about the U.S. War with Mexico, Winfield Scott had bombarded or, or shelled the city of Veracruz into submission, captured it, staged his army there, and then marched you know, basically following Cortez's route toward Mexico City. All right, 20 years, and we go from the U.S. bombing Veracruz to Mexico celebrating the 4th of July. I mean, that's a That's striking, you know, and I, I mean, it's hard to find kind of a, an example of what that might look like, but that much change in such short a period of time, you know, and, and again, especially because historically we think the U.S.-Mexico relationship is pretty bad at this point, but it has really taken some interesting turns. So for a lot of these places, you know, 4th of July celebrations become a way to mark um, celebrate, well, not just celebration, but to mark kinship, friendship, cooperation between, again, you know, liberals in Mexico, unitarios in Argentina and Republicans in the United States to show that these three groups of people are, in fact, part of the same kind of liberal party and liberal impulse. Um, That's, you know. That's one reason. I mean, it could also be strategic. You know, you're seeing more and more U.S. investment, especially in Mexico, but also in other places. Um, so imagine there's some strategy as well. But I find, you know, there's a lot of genuine ideological sympathy between, again, the, the liberals in Mexico and the Republicans in the United States. Um, and initially, this chapter was a little bit broader. There's a lot of material I found about um Mexican nationalist festivals being celebrated in other places that I had to leave out for the sake of the argument, but I will return, not the argument sake of uh, page length, but I will return uh, to that in a, in a future project. So there's still uh, quite a bit to be said about national celebrations, both um, those we would characterize for us and those we would characterize for other countries in the Americas. Um, But the really interesting thing too, as you read this chapter is to think about, you know, what are people choosing to celebrate? And the fact of the matter is, you know, Mexico is celebrating the national birth of a country that in 1867, you know, less than 20 years before had taken a heck of a lot of their national territory. And that's striking. You'll also see and, and this is I found less evidence of this, but i did find some particular Sonora of um, Uruguay, excuse me, of Washington's birthday celebrations as well. Um, which is very intriguing. There's some work kind of how those emerge toward the end of the century in border towns. But this, these seem to have come quite a bit earlier. Um, so I intend to dig into that as well. So hopefully that answers your question.
0: Yes. And your fourth chapter takes all of this and starts to compare what these sort of groups of people that we've been talking about that see similarities between each other. What do they actually do when they have some power and say over their country? And you argue they do quite similar things. So the fourth and final chapter of this part, titled Visions of the Victors, Education and Internal Improvement, examines the nation building projects that victorious liberals implemented during and immediately after these wars we've been talking about. And in particular, you look at education as a prime example of a common guiding philosophy of these people across the hemisphere. So could you talk a little bit about these programs and what they share in common and tell us about this shared liberal hemispheric project? Sure. So one of the reasons I focus on education is because
1: especially in chapter two, there's a heavier focus on Mexico. Um, So I wanted to make sure Argentina got some billing time too. And by doing that, I was able to focus on Sarmiento quite a bit. Um, And again, one of the most important educational reformers in the Americas. Um, but the basic chapter, uh, sorry, the basic question this chapter sort of says is: okay, we've had civil wars. Those civil wars have ended, right? The victors have to figure out ways to knit their countries back together, because very few people that I know pass through a civil war and it's like, ah, oh, we'll take a lackadaisical attitude and hope it never happens again, right? You want to do something that makes sure, especially with the scale and devastation of these conflicts, that that doesn't get replicated anytime soon, if indeed at all. Right. So a lot of what the victors are trying to do is put together what we would call programs of modernization, what they called internal improvement. Um, And for the United States, again, think kind of Henry Clay's classic American system, right? Internal improvements in the forms of roads, canals, and we're a little bit later than clay now. So you can add railroads, which have come into their own telegraph wires, you know, especially in the United States, Republicans tend to bump up the tariff whenever possible. National banks, right? So they're trying to develop the country's infrastructure. And you see the same things in Mexico and Argentina. Um, again, one of the problems too, and this is the case for all three, you know, you have a lot of sort of rural outlying areas and their access to markets has always been somewhat dodgy. Um, canals certainly help with that, but for a long time it was rivers and flatboats. So you know for a while if you were in illinois and you were a farmer i mean you weren't going to drag your stuff to new york city overland you were going to go to the mississippi river put it on a flatboat, take it down to new orleans and do it that way or hire a young abraham lincoln to do it for you as the case may be um but with more canals um especially and then railroads all of a sudden distances started shrinking right so there's this sense in all three countries that we could conquer space um So there's a phrase that Calhoun used back when he was a nationalist, before he became a sectionalist, right? Let us conquer space. Um, So that's sort of the reigning idea. We want to knit peripheries into centers, right? We want to make sure the hinterlands are incorporated. Um, There's this, you know, there's another side of that coin, too, that there's also persistent rebellions in these countries. So if we develop roads and railroads, that gives military forces kind of easier access to put these things down, You never want to lose sight of that point, to be fair. So, all three groups Republicans in the United States, liberals in Argentina, I'm sorry, Unitarios in Argentina, liberals in Mexico, they're thinking kind of, we call it a development mindset, right? And they're self consciously looking at what the other countries do and borrowing from them, too, right? So, Sarmiento, as I said, as a very young man in the 1840s, he went to Europe, did a tour, basically for the Chilean government. He was an exile at that point. And he's not really at all enthusiastic about what he sees. Then he decides to go to Massachusetts, and there's where he finds true inspiration, talks to Horace and Mary Mann, So he links into these Atlantic world reformers, and he had read widely, right? So he knew about them, and he had background about them. Um, and they, in turn, were in correspondence with other people. So Sarmiento translates in the 1850s some of these uh, ideas about education into practice in Buenos Aires. Um, and again, all three groups are saying, and they're, they're adhering to the classical line you know, a, a republic has to be built on the base of an educated citizenry. If you don't have them, then the whole thing isn't going to work. So he wants educated citizens. And I was telling a class today, you know, if you think about kind of what would life look like for you if you couldn't read or write? If someone had either, you know, you chose not to go to school or someone had deliberately withheld education from you, all the things one wouldn't be able to do in this world and how easily it could be taken advantage of, um, you know, and, and Sarmiento is concerned about those things too. He, he sees, The problem of Calillos, the problem of Rosas and Santana in Mexico as kind of a function of the fact that, you know, education is not as widespread as it should be. You know, give the people education, modernize the country and destroy, as he sees it, barbarism that way. Um, That, of course, creates a certain reaction, but we'll get to that at some point. So they're interested in education. They're interested in internal improvement. There are some darker sides to these relationships and one of them comes in policies toward indigenous people, right? Uh, one of the reasons why so many indigenous people in Mexico preferred conservatism is because of the liberal tendency to expropriate communal land holdings, break them up. Some of them also weren't thrilled about um, liberal anti-clericalism. So, you know, that process accelerates. Obviously it occurs in the United States too with the Dawes Act. Um, in all three countries, you see Native Americans pushed off land, you've got campaigns against them. So that's the flip side, right, of this modernization idea that a lot of liberals are, are taking up. Modernization sometimes incurs displacement. Um, you know, In this case, attacks against Native Americans. So it's not all sunshiny by any stretch of the imagination. But you do see even there, you know, the commonalities of what I call the visions of the victors. And again, ultimately, the point I think we want to remember is you've got people who are trying to figure out how to put countries back together, strengthen them. And really, I mean, whether they enunciate it or not, they're trying to do what Sarmiento uh, addressed in Facundo, and that is fix the problem, you know, destroy the barbarism that created, you know, the problems in the first place. Um, so there's a lot of attempts during reconstruction in the United States. Um, let's put a free labor model in the South. Let's fix the backwardness of slavery. People would say, um, that did not work. Of course, the point where in the 20th century, Eisenhower will say the South is the nation's number one economic problem. Um, and he's not wrong, you know, so there's a real effort to try to do these things. How successful they are is another story. But again, the notion that, um, modernization, better uh, educating the populace is going to have some real positive results is a, a, you know, idea that a lot of policymakers throughout the Americas found very persuasive and tried to enact.
0: This, uh, perhaps unfortunately for the protagonists of this book, is the sort of high moder- high watermark of them able to carry out their ideas purely as they envision them. As the second part of your book, Comparative Paths to Order, examines how all three countries faced destabilizing revolts by the vanquished and by some unhappy members of the victorious parties, and sometimes even ensuing civil wars. So chapter five begins this second part, and it's titled The Problem of Order, Not Mexicanization, Violence in Politics, 1861-67. And it focuses on the anxieties of disorder felt by victorious liberals who are glad to have won these wars, but maybe not so happy to find themselves in charge of a war-torn country. So could you talk about these fears, what the heck Mexicanization is, and the emerging politics of order that comes out of these periods? Absolutely, yes. And I will say, you know, if you're... The first half
1: of the book has a lot of uplifting stories, um, with some discordant notes emerging in chapter four, but the second half of the book is is definitely a harder read for a number of reasons. And not because the, the writing is bad or anything like that, it's a harder read because... You know, that's where um, these victors really confront the forces of reaction again that they thought they defeated during the conflicts in the first place. But it turns out they were momentarily defeated, but not entirely defeated. So, Mexicanization we've talked a lot about how the U.S. relationship with Mexico is kind of reorienting during this period. And that's very true. But there's always holdouts, right? There's always the people that prefer to denigrate Mexico or to mock Mexico or things like that, even um, some people who sometimes are inclined to sympathy. So Mexicanization was a word used during people at the time to refer to disorder, uh, political disorder. And so Greg Downs has an interesting article in the HR. He's found a lot of examples from the election of 1876-77, where it looked like the United States might be about to plunge in a new civil war and people fret about Mexicanization. The United States is at the risk of being Mexicanized. Uh, Godkin in the nation, Oh, Mexicanization, Mexicanization, What was us? What was us? What was us? So it's, and we'll get to this when we do the epilogue too, right? But it's easy to say, um, you know, there was a big concern about Mexicanization. My point is I don't like that word for a number of reasons, um, not least of which, it tries to claim that the problems Mexico was facing were Mexico's specific problems, when in fact they're problems that a lot of countries throughout the um, yeah countries throughout the Americas faced. Right, so it wasn't just Mexico that was facing disorder and instability, um, and it wasn't just Mexico where revolutions happened following civil wars, and it wasn't just Mexico where. You know, um, the forces of reaction threaten to take down national states. It's the United States. It's Argentina as well. And so that's why I say let's not talk in the language of Mexicanization. Let's cast things in this language of order. All right. And we're going to have to deal with order throughout the subsequent chapters. All right. And, and how do you interpret order? I mean, some people would say, well, isn't order kind of natural Part of society. I mean, you can't have complete disorder; that would just be chaos and anarchy. So sometimes the state has to guarantee order. But that's the that's the rub of it, isn't it? Right. What is the state doing to guarantee order? And there's no question that Porfirio Diaz's Mexico, for instance, right, has a lot of order, but it also has a pretty high cost in terms of freedoms. So in this period, again, which I call 1861 to 1867, so. For Argentina, that's after the Battle of Pavon with the early kind of actions toward tamping down some of the uh, Caudillo resistance, particularly El Chaco. With the United States, that's going to be the period from about Appomattox through the Military Reconstruction Acts when Congress definitively seized control of reconstruction from Johnson. And for Mexico, that'll be the period, basically the French intervention from beginning to end. You know, they're always dealing with these problems of order and, and disorder. You know, so each country, for instance, let's talk with Argentina since it came out of its civil war, theoretically the earliest. Okay, Mitre wins a Pavón, the Argentine Republic takes place, um, the interior provinces aren't happy. There's a lot of people in there that say, we don't want any parts of this uh, Porteño-led modernity. That's not for us, that's not our thing, we don't want to join. So there's resistance by Gauchos and by Calillos, Um, And El Chaco is the most famous example of this. So what the Argentine army does is it sends various – well, the government sends various portions of the army to these internal provinces to try and tamp down the disorder, right? Stop this violence, stop these rebellions. And at one point – and I look at the correspondence between General Panero and Rivas and Panero laments, you know, Rosas could keep order all his life. Why the heck can't we? And – I'm not sure if he was asking rhetorically or not. It doesn't seem like it, but the answer to that is, you know, because Rosas's order was so caught up with tyranny, right? It involved denying people's, denying people liberties. And that's the quote unquote problem, right? With democracy and Republicanism. And, um, you don't deny people liberties theoretically. And, you know, you may have these problems of order. So these, these states are facing these problems and, They're facing pretty concerted resistance and sometimes it's traditional army to army fighting, but sometimes it's more what we would call guerrilla type resistance. And you see a lot of that across the U.S. South, of course, and in Argentina to some extent. I'm sorry, in Mexico to some extent as well. Um, So how do you fight against that kind of violence, you know? And this is the I mean our civil war ended at Appomattox, ended at Bennett Place and Stan Wadey's surrender. But there were people at the time that were saying to lead, disband your armies, you know, send everybody into the hills, turn this into a giant guerrilla fight. Um, and if you think about that, how horrifying things could have become, you know, imagine, you know, years and years and years of protracted guerrilla resistance, you know, all the casualties this would have uh, caused, the problems. You know, it's it's. it's I mean, it's a very good thing that the U.S. Civil War didn't take that route, although you could argue, and people have, the Reconstruction is an insurgency. Um, so all that to say, right, you have countries over the same period grappling with the problems of order, you know, to how much should the state, the national state, do to guarantee order, right? How much is too much? Um, is there a problem in somewhat draconian methods? I mean, Sarmiento... Historians have said maybe as governor San Juan, he ordered the assassination of El Chaco or debated to some extent. Um, And Sarmiento, you know, would say, well, sometimes you have to, you can't, you can't treat these people gently if they keep rebelling, right? You have to stop the violence or else the country just goes into a death spiral of violence and rebellion. Um, But then there's the problem too of, you know, If you don't necessarily win at the polls politically, I mean, technically, you know, in democracies and republics, one waits for the next election. I mean, Lincoln says it famously, you can't appeal or shouldn't appeal from ballots to bullets. Um, But the problem is not just in the case of the Civil War, which was an appeal like that. During these periods of reconstruction, all three countries, you're going to see these frequent, repeated appeals from ballots to bullets, people who are going to seize violence. As the weapon to secure what they want. So the glimmerings are there in 1867, even when um, you know the liberals are flying high because they won their conflicts. But some of them are starting to see that, you know, there are real problems here in the making.
0: The sixth chapter, so ending with those rebellions is actually quite helpful because the sixth chapter picks up titled Suppressing Rebellions and Punishing Rebels. And it argues that governments, in a way that maybe some historians underestimate or don't always capture, governments are actually quite capable of suppressing these rebellions when they choose to. And you'd already mentioned some instances where the state sort of chooses when to enforce its power or not at different borders. Uh, The primary issue, or at least a major issue you identify in this chapter, is that the, the victorious liberals, Republicans, unitarios, for one reason or another, decide they can't sustainably keep putting down these rebellions um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, And this ultimately leads them uh, in sort of your estimation, or at least the estimation I picked up here, to not really sufficiently punish or disincentivize rebellions. So could you talk a little bit about this dynamic, about why these people who have won these civil wars sort of lose the willingness to keep fighting the civil war? Might be another way to to phrase it. Yes.
1: And that's, you know, an excellent multi-part question. I mean, you've got a lot in there. So One thing to remember is when a civil war ends, everybody, the winners and and the losers, you know, they face some tough questions, right? For the winners, one question is, what do you want to do to the vanquished, to the losers? I mean, how do you, if at all, want to punish people? And you can imagine there's a variety of ideas about how one might do that. Everything from killing every 10th man to saying, oh, well, you're all amnestied, go home and don't do this anymore or else. And that's a bit of a caricatured reaction, right? But the fact of the matter is there were people in all three countries that wanted very draconian punishments. You know, let's disfranchise everybody. They lose their right to vote. Um, This would sort of undermine some of their citizenship rights. You know, let's – Republicans are arguing the United States. Keep the South as either conquered provinces or states that committed suicide at the territorial status. Remake them. Um, and then in a generation or two, we'll see if they're ready to be let back in. You know, there were other folks, Ben Wade, that said, you know, you got to execute some people. He says to Andrew Johnson, hang about a baker's dozen of the leading rebels. That was his idea. Um, so how do, you, how do you punish the vanquished? And of course, the problem is if you go too Draconian, you can arouse resentment and anger and you can create uh, possibly the conditions for another revolution. If you are too lenient, you can seem sort of silly or even contemptible, and maybe people say, well, if they're not going to punish anybody, then what's the harm in us trying another revolution? So that's the dynamic that a lot of states are facing. And yes, I do argue that especially, again, during this 1867, 68 through 72, 73, 72 probably, more than 73, you can see national governments who are able to suppress rebellions, which is, is not often what you hear during this period, especially Reconstruction. The national state almost seems like it can't do anything at all. But yet if you look at each of the three countries, you'll see specific examples that when they want to act, they can. Um, that could be at the state level. It could be at the provincial level in the case of Argentina, um, states for Mexico and the United States. That could be at the national level. So what do some of those look like? Well, in Argentina – Right, Sarmiento came to an agreement with Justo José de Urquiza. He allowed him to retire to Entre Ríos and just kind of stay there. Um, and Urquiza probably started taking a little too pro-government a line for some of his diehards. So he and his sons are actually assassinated by a man named Ricardo López Jordan, who then claims the governorship of Entre Ríos. Well, Sarmiento sends the army. Right, and and Lopez Jordan has the temerity to say this is basically a state matter. You know, you shouldn't be intervening. But Sarmiento sends the army, even though the army is numerically um, outnumbered, they still defeat Lopez Jordan. They expel him. Right, so here's an instance of a man challenging the power of a provincial government. Right, assassinating the governor and his sons, um, getting into a scuffle with the Argentine army, but basically being expelled. Now he's not captured and executed, but he is driven out of Argentina. Right? In the case of the United States, the Ku Klux Klan, um, a paramilitary terrorist organization, was raging out of control in a lot of the southern states. So Grant decided, um, once Congress gave him the tools to do so, and that's critical, he couldn't do this unilaterally, he had to wait for Congress, um, I'm going to intervene. So he used the army like a scalpel, slashed the Klan's Achilles tendon, Right, basically broke the back of the Ku Klux Klan in South Carolina. Now... Did that end paramilitary terrorism no but did it show that the government could act and could suppress these things yes in argentina i'm sorry in mexico you had rebellions at state levels like i was talking about and again juarez is a little bit inconsistent at times sometimes he will intervene sometimes he won't and then toward the end of the period covered by this chapter there's a presidential election juarez by the way had been uh, re-elected basically without incident in 1867 but now it's 1871 and a lot of people feel he's been in power too long. They decry, oh, we don't like this continued re-electionism, blah, blah, blah. So when he wins the presidential election, Puerto Diaz starts a rebellion. Um, and this rebellion, you know, it sought to topple Juarez and put Diaz in his place. And now Juarez died midway through it. So what happened is, and this kind of spills into the next chapter, but I'll, I'll tell it anyway. Sebastian Lerdo de Tejada issues um, a proclamation that basically amnesties Diaz. So, in Argentina and the United States and Mexico, you can see governments that can stop rebellions, but the problem is, especially toward the latter part of this period, it's usually easier to amnesty than to um, engage in draconian tactics. All right. So, you ask why does this happen um some of it is political will in the case of the united states right as reconstruction continues for a lot of people it just seems like the goalposts posts keep getting moved you know well first it's they need this then it's need this then it's this is it seems for a lot of northerners who start getting sick of reconstruction um we, we you know we're never going to get out of here it's become a quagmire a black hole something like that you know, and for the people of Mexico, right, a lot of them supported Juarez. It's not as if the entire country rose up to overthrow him. That's that's crazy. Diaz had limited support in a lot of sectors. But there were enough people that were convinced of his Juarez has been in power too long, you know, he's not a dictator by any stretch of the imagination, but he's assuming too much power to himself, we need to let some younger blood read Diaz himself, uh, take the presidency, um, the interesting thing for me is Argentina, you know, took the hardest line, both in terms of against El Chaco and then against Lopez Jordan, right? Um, and that's not, you know, you often hear in the historiography of Reconstruction was harsh or mild or lenient or draconian, and usually my answer is, well, in comparison to what? And historians of the United States have been less adept at kind of answering that question. So here's an interesting case of um, when we look at how do people deal with failed rebellions, well, Argentina seems to be the best about suppressing and punishing the rebels, you know, the United States and Mexico are not quite as adept. Um, and then that, you know, you're, you're getting toward 1873. And there in the United States, there's what they call financial panic, it's an economic depression. And that does a lot toward explaining chapter eight. So some of why this happens is reconstruction is endure, there's a loss of will, there's the actions of the vanquished and increasingly the victors, right? Because Diaz is not one of the vanquished in Mexico. He fought alongside Juarez during the entire war, of the reform, well, the French intervention. Um, he was a very prominent liberal general. But the conservatives are so discredited that they basically collapse as a political force in a way that the Democrats did not and the Federales basically did not in Argentina. So there's a different situation in Mexico. And there it is very much victor on victor violence, where in the United States, in Argentina, there's that heavy dimension from the vanquished. Um, but anyway, for a lot of people, these conflicts are just, it seems like it's never ending wars, you know, we heard about some of us remember, you know, the war in the Middle East has become a quagmire, and we're sunk here. And, and they might not have said quagmire necessarily, but the same principle would have applied, how much longer are we gonna have to keep doing this, and it's expensive. You know, this kind of peacekeeping stuff is not cheap. If you have to maintain armies and provinces, you have to suppress rebellions. Plus, and this is the real problem, you know, in the United States, I mean, the president, contrary to what some presidents may think, cannot do whatever they like unilaterally without problems. I mean, Grant had the best of intentions, but like I said, he needed the tools from Congress to actually go in and suppress the Klan. He needed the Klan Acts. Um, And so at some point, People are going to start to say, you know, well, enough's enough. We've done enough and they're going to get really suspicious that Grant trying to intervene. Well, it's really just a strategy to prop up Republican candidates in the South or whatever. So it's not any one reason that the country's become sick of of reconstructions. It would be more a cocktail of reasons, I would say. But again, to return to another point you made, which is a very good one that I do want to leave people with. You know, these states can and do suppress rebellions, and that is something that is not always reflected in the historiography.
0: Yeah, very, very much. I'm much more familiar with the Mexican historiography, but you would sort of imagine that the Mexican state evaporated um, during this period, which is not quite the case. So the seventh and final sort of regular body chapter in this part, Revolutions May Go Backward, as its name implies, argues that liberals compromised on a great many of their 1860 goals and, and aspirations in the interest of national unity and reconciliation. So could you talk a little bit about this process and what weaving the nation back together again, what that looked like in each country? Because like you sort of hinted at in, in chapter six, it looks quite different from place to place.
1: Mm-hmm yes and i'm gonna you know say this is a little bit like watching sausage get made you probably don't want to see it and it's not going to be pretty and that's kind of what this chapter is to be honest you know there's a lot of compromise and both from the standpoint of people at the time and from our standpoint a lot of it is is morally um well morally repugnant so what does this look like that's a fabulous question One of the things that people have pointed out, and I try and, you know, provide some case studies to really amplify this point. I mean, how does Reconstruction end? A lot of it is through a wave of violence, right? So we never want to discount the actions of the vanquished. And, you know, this this point cannot be understated. Um, The paramilitary terrorism, you know, organizations like the Klan... So we think about the Mississippi plan, but there's also plans in Alabama and Louisiana, Mississippi. And, and so across the Southern states, right, Democrats were engaging in a process that they called redemption. Um, they use that as shorthand for reclaiming their states from, as they would say, the horrors of carpetbag misrule. What they were doing is overthrowing democratically elected governments. So, so much for that BS line about, uh, oh, it never happened here. Right. Well, yeah, it did, as a matter of fact. And a close study of Reconstruction um, shows you in brutal detail that it happened here. So they're overthrowing state governments, right? This whole process kind of comes to a head in the election of 1876-77. Um, this is the one that Rutherford B. Hayes wins by one electoral vote, assuming that the Republicans can hold the last the electoral votes from the last three Reconstructed states. And the, you know it almost takes the country back into civil war. There's a deal that's cut at the end. Um, The Electoral Commission awards the votes to Hayes, and then Hayes... There's no text of this, but it's called the Compromise of 1877, right? May have made a compromise, probably did from my reading of the evidence, but you're never going to find the smoking gun if you're looking for it. What is this compromise? Republicans would withdraw the troops from around the state houses that are protecting Republican governments in South Carolina and Louisiana, would let the Democrats complete the process of redemption, as they called it. They would uh, try for a railroad and then Hayes would appoint a southerner to his cabinet, postmaster general, to give a lot of patronage jobs. So basically the bargain here that Republicans are making is we're going to let basically the old elite take things back in hand in the southern states. And that – you you don't want to say, well, the end of Reconstruction, Jim Crow starts the next day. It doesn't. There's a period where black political participation continues, but it's going to be chipped away. And then you will see Jim Crow emerge starting in 1890. So the Republicans, and I mean, Adam Fairclough made this point very brutally um, in, a, in a book about the Potter Commission, basically says Republicans, you know, sold out the people that brought them into power. And yeah, I mean, I, it's very hard for me to find a good word to say about Hayes, to be quite frank. Um, so the deal there is, Republicans are going to turn things over to the basically the elite in the South. They're going to focus on the North because those are the states they need to win the elections. Um, they're going to let the old elite take things in hand, and that will lead to widespread voter suppression and Jim Crow laws, which remember curtail the rights of African Americans and a lot of lower class white people too. A lot of white folks lose their right to vote as well, which we don't think about. So widespread voter suppression. That's the United States. That's the Faustian bargain made there. In Mexico, right, Diaz's amnestied after the 1871-72 uh, pronouncement, pronunciamiento. Well, there's a presidential election in 1876. He's a candidate again. He loses again. He's going to raise a rebellion again. And this time it succeeds, right? But... Diaz faces, you know, there's some unrest. There's some continuing Laredista sentiment sentiment there. Um, What he's going to do for a lot of folks in Mexico is say, I'm offering you, you know, the best deal of your life that you'll ever get. You can have order, you can have stability, modernity, and progress. You just have to be okay with giving up some freedoms, right? And so he makes, again, this Faustian bargain that people would prefer order to the disorder, as he sees it, of the period that preceded it, I'll tamp down the violence. I'll stop the banditry. Right? We'll have you know, all electric lights throughout Mexico City. We'll have plenty of roads and railroads. Um, there just won't be much in the way of you know things like freedom of the press and freedom of expression and stuff. And so there's been some interesting work, as you know, in Mexican history about how people, because they can't come out and criticize Diaz openly, they'll criticize railroads as a way to criticize Diaz. So there's an anti-modernization thing there. But that's, again, very, very simplified, the uh, situation in Mexico. In Argentina, right, the election of 1880 leads to another electoral rebellion. Um, the government does put this one down. But what happens there is a generate they call it the generation of 80, la generación de 80, It comes to power. And, again, you see some of the same things you see in other countries, that emphasis on order, an emphasis on stability, relatively curtailed access to the suffrage. We want to eliminate, if we can, the politics of the street. So basically my conclusion is that all three countries have been so kind of exhausted by warfare and reconstruction that even a lot of people who might not have been inclined to make this bargain in 1860 by the late 1870s and 1880s are saying, okay, we want order and we want stability. Now, that order and stability comes, you know, on the back of, in some cases, terror campaigns and in in all three countries, large sectors are disfranchised. Um, So there's a hideous price to be paid for that order, but it's the culmination perhaps of the, not perhaps, it's the culmination of these um, long processes of struggle. And it shows, right, and this is the instructive lesson, um, that just because you win a war doesn't mean you win a peace, Right. And we always say, you know, well, the victors get to write the history. Even that's not necessarily the case. The United States is the best counterexample of that. If you look at Reconstruction, I mean, the South wrote the history of its victory, uh, which was accepted as hegemonic for a long time. So that's kind of how that works. And again, you, you'd have to read the chapter to get kind of the full story there. I'm trying to condense and give everybody a, an idea. But by 1880, all three countries... Um, ironically, you know, because of these these Pan-American dreams that we talked about at the beginning, they had embarked on this path to stability and order um, that, again, resulted in, in disfranchisement and in national elites, especially in the United States, kind of giving up on large sectors of the country and letting, you know, the um, the Southern elite rule.
0: Now, the vast majority of this book is interested in making sense of these three countries' historiography and sort of the Western Hemisphere's historiography in the 19th century in this new light. What happens when we look vertically? I think, as you said, north-south. The conclusion focuses on more current events in a way that I think is really intellectually interesting and and certainly would be interesting in a classroom setting. I, I think there's many places this would be a great assignment to read. The conclusion focuses on the phrase used by some American commenters and politicians to describe January 6th, something from a banana republic. And you argue that language like this not only obscures the United States' past, have you already mentioned our long history of internal coups uh, when people didn't like how elections went, but it also isolates us from our complicity in banana republics internationally and moments in history when we actually worked well with other countries or or in a liberal aspiration uh, with other countries uh, and comradeship with our neighbors. So, could you talk a little bit about this? Uh, I think you call it a 21st century fear of Mexicanization and how you see the histories that you've connected here together. What can it tell us about this fear uh, and these processes at play today?
1: Absolutely. So, yes, one of the things that I picked up on when I was writing the conclusion and this was, you know, this obviously wasn't in the first draft of this manuscript because that was before January the 6th, 2021. But writing it afterward, I thought a lot about that. And yes, I was very struck by how many people, you know, Mike Rogers came out and said, this is banana Republic crap. George Bush, it was much more polished. You know, these are the, these lamentable scenes of a banana Republic. They should never occur here. But right? but the same idea, whether the language is polished or kind of vulgar, it, it's the same thing, right? The United States is not a banana Republic. These scenes don't happen here because these are the scenes of a banana Republic, which we are not. So they don't have, you know, it's a, it's a circular argument, um, But like Ethan was saying, one of the things that kind of immediately made my hackles bristle a little bit is this sort of reflexive kind of unthinking condemnation. A, it doesn't reckon with the role that the United States played in creating the so-called banana republics, right? Obviously corporations like U S fruit, but the government itself projections of power so that I considered a little bit disingenuous. Um, But B like I'm trying to, hammer throughout this podcast this notion that oh it didn't happen here and this only occurs in banana republics right it creates this artificial separation between the united states and the rest of the hemisphere um and you, you this is certainly not a new thing right if you go to democracy in america you can see tocqueville has this aside once where he talks about the differences between the united states and you know the in his mind barbarous countries of latin america where they tear each other's entrails out so it's not a new idea by any stretch of the imagination. But it's a frustrating one, and it's a dangerous one. Because again, the information that I've given you should allow people to say, well, wait a minute. What about during Reconstruction, when Democrats, again, quote, unquote, redeemed, which means they used violence to overthrow democratically elected governments? Are those not the scenes of Banana Republic? Henry Watterson in Congress in 1877, screaming, that if Republicans try to inaugurate Hayes, Democrats should march 100,000 men on Washington, D.C. and inaugurate Tilden, Hayes's opponent, by force. That seems to me to be the scenes of a banana republic, right? I don't like that term in case hopefully my sarcasm is coming through, right? I think we should just stop using that except, you know, to refer to historical documents and say, well, um, it's just, you know, it's a very problematic one for an extreme number of reasons. So like I said, banana republics, it obscures the U.S. role, but it also tries to create this artificial separation between the U.S. and the rest of the Americas. You can't really say, well, this didn't happen here. You know, in fact, it did. So once you've come to that realization, that it not only happened here, but it happened elsewhere, then you can start really thinking about an intellectually serious history about violence, disorder, and instability throughout the entirety of the American hemisphere. Right. And looking at, you know, the fact that the United States did not escape this, it's suffering the same problems and issues that every other country did. And then I would also say Banana Republic's kind of obscures the more positive side that I'm trying to convey here, too, that we don't want to get lost entirely. And that is. You know, open oh, inner republics elsewhere, those, you know, and you hear people say like turbulent Latins. I mean, I didn't think people said that in the 2020s anymore, but some do. You know, that's sort of ridiculous too. It, again, reinforces that artificial separation and it makes us forget all the people that privileged cooperation and privileged in, uh, kinship, ideological similarity, right? And they didn't subscribe to this relentless xenophobia and demonization that you often see today of of both sides by the other or one side by the other excuse me you know so they would be very disheartened um, if they looked at our politics and kind of saw some of the things that some people in the united states were saying about latin america or they would be disheartened by some of the things you see some latin americans saying about the united states because they say that that promotes the interests of the opponents right at the end of the day it's, it's just like a corporation, you know, you want workers fighting amongst each other um, instead of fighting with the boss, right? And the opponents of, of democracy and republicanism, and mark me, there are many of them in this world today, they want the United States and Latin America at each other's throats, fighting with each other, you know, squabbling with each other, not focusing on true threats, right? Then and now, I think, you know, you can make that same point. So my, my argument is there's a heck of a lot of similarity between the U.S. and Latin America in some, you know, really unfortunate ways for everybody concerned, like the fact that we've all suffered this terrible violence and disorder and problems like that, but also in some positive ways, you know, and if we remember the positive ways, and if we really emphasize and think about them, then I think we approach not only the history of this hemisphere in a different way, but also we can maybe approach um, the way we relate to each other today in a different way, which I would say could only be a good thing, especially given the problems of the previous administration's approach toward Latin America. Um, and of course, you know, January 6th, that's it's a, for some people that really, you know, it's a problem mentioning that, but again, it's, it's not something you can avoid talking about, you know, and, and I can understand why people feel ashamed of those scenes and why we don't want to talk about But well, we have to confront. It We have to be intellectually honest. Right. And, um, Again, starting with that and thinking about how this is not particularly unique in the United States, nor is this sort of thing particularly unique in the Americas, allows us to begin to see these broader histories of the Americas, which again are often obscured by many tendencies. Not least of which is the one that says history stops at the nation's borders, which is
0: utterly preposterous.
1: <laughs> but uh, there it is.
0: Well, hopefully, and uh, you know, it's in the context of bad events, but I, I think we can start to see a spark of the. The impulse you're hoping for in the reactions to the sort of fall very false start coup attempt in brazil uh in the last year uh which i think sparked some like oh maybe we're not the only country going through uh, some of these dynamics uh well evan before we go could you tell us what you're working on now or what you're working on next sure um a lot of what i'm working on now is
1: I was debating including some material in the book, but I decided not to it. It'll become the It's become the nucleus of my next project. If you look at the Gulf South States during the Civil War, so Texas and Louisiana, what you'll see is a lot of people, refugees, who flee. They're Unionists, they go into Mexico, right? And that's completely the opposite direction of where we expect refugee movement. We usually think, oh, they must have gone north into safer territory. Well north was logistically challenging, so they went south, right? And then in Mexico, um, who could they turn to but uh, uh, consular officials? So I'm really beginning to think about that episode and then broader histories of refugees and displacement during this period. So there are plenty of folks in Mexico that went into the north, right? So into the United States, just as people in the United States go south into Mexico. What does this tell us about statelessness, about borders, about citizenship? I think there's some really interesting stories to be told here. And that... I expect will be, um, yeah, that's my second project. And it, it seems like a book length project rather than an article length one. So that's what I'm working on. And then I've got other things in the hopper, but uh, I also teach, you know, a full scheduled semester. So,
0: Well, that sounds like a really interesting work. I really like flipping the directionality of, of how we think about movement on that border. And we'd love to have you back on the podcast when that book is done. Well, I will be more than happy to come back. So I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for your time today and telling us about your book.
1: You're certainly welcome. And again, I really appreciate the invitation for you uh, reading it so carefully because I know the demands of the interview and um, it was very gracious of you to
0: ask me to come on.